Hey folks, uh, you may know that I do this all on my own. I uh, collect the content, uh, I do the interviews, I produce it, and I, uh, pr ex I process the audio and I process the video, and I do this all on my own. And I, I do have to pay for programs for some of this stuff and apps for communicating. And, uh, you know, uh, it costs a little bit of money and it takes a lot of time and a lot of work. And it would be great if you wanted to be a patron at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist. I would really appreciate it. And if not, I, it would be great if you could go to like iTunes or Podchaser or, uh, some other, uh, pod review site and give me five stars or a rating or a review of some kind. Something positive that, and, uh, maybe share the show out with your friends and family, anybody you think would like it. If you think somebody needs a little bit of exposure to like a worker who just happens to also enjoy discussing political philosophy, <laughs> it would be great if you, uh, if you shared the show around. I, it, everything that you do helps. In what is becoming a uh, kind of the usual, I have way more content for this uh, episode than I normally would have expected to. I have a decent length uh, interview with Byron Lopez Ellington, who is who started a uh, anarchist literary magazine uh, titled Rulerless, and then I have. Uh, a segment I'm calling Ask an Anarchist, which is with my friend Renee. I'm going to try and get as make that as short as possible. Um, basically, he's a, not an anarchist, and he just has some thoughts about like he, well, not thoughts necessarily, but at, questions and maybe maybe a little bit of an argument against uh, anarchism stuff that I hope that I can address and that uh, I can deal with uh, from my perspective at least, and because I've been an anarchist for a while now and. I think I like to think I've got a few of these ideas fleshed out pretty well. So then uh, after that, I've got uh, read reviews with Justin Clark for, uh, I believe this episode we're doing the memoirs of Frederick Douglass. <laughs> so, um, so you've got a, and then I've got uh, another short segment of anarchist reading corner with uh, the anarchist turn, uh, I didn't quite get through the entire bit that I thought I would, but I guess either I read really slow or, <laughs> or it's longer than I expected it to be. But I, I'm really enjoying reading uh, The Anarchist Turn, and I hope that if you stick with me all the way to the end that you're also enjoying it. Um, yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. I There's been you know a number of things going on in various circles that I could probably talk about in an intro spiel, but I don't know if I really need to. I mean, there's drama in the atheist community because somebody wrote an article saying that new, the new atheism merged with the far right. And 
you know, this, I think my opinion on this is pretty well known. Like, I believe that the far right and atheism uh, are, if they haven't merged, they're close bedfellows. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is entirely too, too much, uh, in my opinion. Uh, but there's people arguing one way or the other. Uh, if you're an atheist and involved in the atheist community, I, I think that might, that might be of interest to you, but there's lots of other places you can get that content. Um, one thing that as a leftist, I can say for sure, I, I quit listening to, uh, a lot of liberal, um, atheist podcasts because as soon as Joe Biden won the U S election, it was like, everything's hunky dory. Like they, they talk about holding him to account and they talk about holding his feet to the fire and, and pushing him to the left, but they don't seem to know what that means. They, 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 and they often like podcasters that I used to really admire have said things like, why would anybody listen to anarchists? And they've argued about straw men of socialism, like, uh, and that all socialists are living on, uh, their mother's couch or, you know, they joke about that shit, like, and maybe it's just a joke, but at some point, it's it's it it dictates it shows an overall attitude, and I'm just not there here for it. Uh, if you like my content, chances are you won't like, you know, hearing that sort of thing. But I mean, maybe you will. Maybe you maybe you enjoy um, people talking down to you. I hope not. <laughs> I hope <clears throat> I hope that you have the uh, dignity and uh, self-worth to recognize that your philosophy is valid if you are on the left and farther to the left than your average liberal, uh, even a progressive liberal. Uh, uh, people who are pro-capitalist often look down on us as anti-capitalists because they think that we're being unrealistic. And I try to give them grace. I try to be lenient with that. But at some point, it's just like, Okay, I'm done. I'm done listening to you insult my perspective. So, uh, so that the I guess I talked a lot longer than that than I would have normally liked to, but because um, this isn't an atheist show, right? Like I'm an atheist. I'm a skeptic. I like to apply evidence based thinking to everything that I do as much as I can, um, because obviously I'm a, fa- a flawed human being too. So a lot of times I'm not going to be doing as well as I would like. But, uh, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not in the atheist community anymore. I don't, I don't associate with most of those people anymore. Um, unless they're also leftists. So (laughs) another thing that I wanted to kind of touch on is this idea, this stuff that's been going on, uh, when people discuss sex work lately. Um, I don't know, maybe it's just a, a, a popular moment for swerfism, uh, sex worker exclusionary feminism, um, because I've been called like a rapey creep like multiple times in the last couple months just because I defend the workers' rights of sex workers. I think that decriminalization is the way to go, and I think that uh, women who are all people, non-binary people, transgender people, um, all people who are involved, men, who are involved in sex work should have the right to organize. Uh, They should have the right to uh, establish safe client lists. They should have the right to establish uh, safe working conditions. They should have the right to all of these things. 
And I feel like it's important to not conflate the kind of consensual sex work that some people do participate in with sex work, sex trafficking. Because sex trafficking, I don't, I don't apply the word work to trafficking because uh, then you are talking about slavery. Um, not all human trafficking is sex trafficking, but all sex trafficking is slavery. Um, even if it's couched in other ways, right? Like um, the woman who is doing sex work because she has to pay a coyote when she was immigrating somewhere, that person is still a valuable person who deserves protections at work, right? Like they still deserve to have access to safe client lists and a safe, clean workplace. Um, despite the fact that they are essentially a slave like that, that's that. And I, I don't want to get too in the mix on this because it's a, it's a tough subject and there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, but there are there's a level of consent that one can have in my opinion that and where you draw that line is a matter of a variety of uh perspectives i've i've heard quite a few uh people on the left talk about uh no that uh, like there's no such thing as consensual sex work except the, for the fact that i actually know uh, sex workers who do it as a choice and because it's the best way for them to earn a living compared to other uh, jobs that are available to them. And I mean, yeah, you can say, well, that, ex that ex shows you the, the pr problem with the system, but the system we exist in still exists. So you have to, you can't say yes, in a Marxist utopia or in an anarchist utopia, there would be no sex work. I'm not convinced that's true. But you cannot say that in that situation where no one is being exploited, that you would, you know, then you can have the discussion about whether or not sex work ought to, ought to exist. Uh, but in the current system, if somebody can make three or four times uh, a day doing sex work, what you would make working at McDonald's, and they're not qualified for anything else, and that's what they would prefer to do, because honestly, working at McDonald's fucking sucks. Like, yes, it sucks that we all have to fucking do jobs that are non-consensual and we're coerced into survival. Like, that fucking sucks. But that doesn't make sex work and sex workers any less valid. And I know I'm just a fucking dude who's just arguing this, uh, you know, on my own here. But, uh, and uh, I don't want to pretend either that, like, I get that like liberals are like uh, they say things like sex work is work because they believe that the system is the way it is and that, you know, uh, we shouldn't be changing it. But, but I think that there's two things going on here. First is that sex work is work. It's literally work. And if you think that that's any different than uh, if you think that's any different than, you know, somebody who's physically injured at their job, breaking their back every day, lifting boxes or, uh, chipping at fucking cement with a pickaxe. Like, I'm sorry, my body is fucking broken because of fucking physical work. And, 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 and I don't want to compare it to sex work because they're different types of work and they have different psychological and physical effects on a person. But that doesn't reduce the fact that like 
both of us are experiencing trauma in a system that is based on exploiting us. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very frustrating conversation. But I've experienced a lot of, I've seen a lot of leftists arguing against decriminalization. And I think that they're reciting a lot of right-wing talking points because right-wingers love to talk about being against sex trafficking and child trafficking, but they absolutely hate doing anything and they absolutely uh, are basing most of this stuff on like a purity culture, religious zealotry. Um, so that's me. I, I think that uh, being anti-sex worker is being a reactionary. Um, but I've got, I've got a lot of interviews uh, in the can. So there's going to be a lot of content coming out. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about a lot of them. Uh, everything, everybody from uh, local activists who are involved with uh, prison abolition to um, to bigger names, uh, to podcasters, to uh, Satanists, to like I've got a, a hell of a good list of uh, people who are doing really good work, and I'm really excited to get it all posted for you. Uh, unfortunately that I, I got sick this week, so, uh, it took me a lot of extra time to get this one out and I'm just, I'm still recovering. So I, I, that's why my voice sounds the way it does right now. <laughs> um, um, so I think I've talked for way longer than I really wanted to, but, uh, thanks for joining me on, uh, the mind of a skeptical leftist. I hope that you enjoy this interview with Byron Lopez Ellington, uh, a young man who has started a literary anarchist magazine. Um, and I hope that you enjoy the Red Review on Frederick Douglass's memoirs. And I hope that you enjoy everything else that I add into this. As you might know, I'm adding every, like, these are shows are getting longer and longer. And, uh, but I'm also producing each episode. Each segment is going to be its own YouTube video uh, of, you know, shorter lengths. The only thing that you won't get by going and watching those uh, individual YouTube videos is is my intro. So <laughs> I hope that that's good enough. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, and welcome to The Mind of Skeptical Leftist, the podcast yeah, that covers. promotes progressivism, left-wing philosophy, and critical thinking. Uh, I'm joined today by Byron Lopez Ellington from uh, Rulerless, the, the anarchist literary magazine. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Thank you. So I guess uh, one uh, of the main things uh, where I start is uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and uh, your political uh, philosophy? Okay, so well... I'm uh, I'm a high schooler uh, in Austin, Texas area, um, and uh, for a couple years now, I've identified as an anarchist communist. Um, I've um, read more and more theory. My philosophy has changed a lot over that time, but but I still have the same broad label. Um, cool. I you know I generally believe in uh, communal economies and and anti hierarchical structures. Yeah, a lot of people have said I'm gonna outgrow anarchism, but <laughs> I don't know. I've just gotten more uh, more into it as time goes on. I think it's a philosophy that that can 
comports with the evidence and with logical thinking and with like moving forward as a society to the best outcomes. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. So, yeah. So what got you started in anarchism in the first place? My memories are kind of hazy about it. Um, I think for a couple of years, I was just generally looking into socialism uh, of various tendencies. Um, of course, when I was too young of a kid to really think for myself, I was I just kind of followed my parents' politics, which is standard progressive <laughs> liberal. Uh, you know, I was an, a very pro Obama kid, that kind of oh, thing. Yeah, I mean that. You could have started in a worse place. <laughs> yeah, I definitely could have started in a worse place. Uh, um, and then yeah, a few years ago, I I think I really got into anarchism through the the leftist YouTube community. Okay. Uh, people like uh, Thought Slime and Non Compete. Though these days, I I heavily disagree with Non Compete on a lot of issues. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, and I've now uh, I, I've read several books you know obviously the conquest of bread but it's not my favorite that i've read so far um yeah. goldman and malatesta and some modern anarchists like graber nice nice yeah yeah that's i think online youtube uh anarchism has done a really uh, a good service for the anarchist uh broad movement broadly mm-hmm. i agree <laughs> i uh i i think I again, I gotta agree with you with non compete. I've I really enjoyed some of their stuff early on, and then uh, as as time has gone on, I've kind of branched off. But I still watch a lot of Thought Slime. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Thought Slime is a really chill person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not so, not quite so invested in on t- online drama as uh, uh, some other. As online some, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess not I don't want to mischaracterize the idea of drama either cuz sometimes draw like just fighting against injustice is considered drama, right? Mm-hmm. But also there's like everybody online thinks I'm a fash even though I'm a lefty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so as as a like I I've been an anarchist since like 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh but I haven't done all the readings that a lot of younger anarchists have done. So I often still have a lot to learn and a lot. uh, Mm. uh, And I try to stay humble, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think think that no matter how much you've read and how much, even how much praxis you've engaged in, like it's always best to, you know, to stay humble and, and admit there's still probably an infinite number of things you don't know. Yeah, that's right. And there is literally an infant (laughs) without a doubt. So uh, the reason that we uh, got together here initially is because of your magazine, your online, or is it online or is it going to be an actual? It's online, but um, I'm working on getting it possibly in print as well. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Rulerless, what is an anarchist literary magazine? Well, so... Earlier this year, I wrote an anarchist poem, which an extended version of which has now actually been published in Black Cat Magazine, which we'll talk about later. But um, I was shopping around for places to submit it. I could not find anywhere that would that was like into like kind of libertarian socialist politics, right. and um, 
<laughs> the the only place I found was Fifth Estate, which Fifth Estate is great, and I actually now have a poem that's been accepted for publication by them. Um, but I submitted to Fifth Estate, and I got this um, auto reply that says that said like we get so many poetry submissions, someone could make an anarchist poetry magazine. And, like, <laughs> and then as, as projects of mine tend to start this way, a couple of weeks later, it was suddenly happening. Um, That's and, good. <laughs> yeah. And I'd started rulerless and um, now it's really crazy. I've got over 1600 followers on Twitter with it now. Nice. And it's, just purely through donations, the whole first issue has been funded to pay all the contributors. And um, the first issue is pretty much done. There's just some finalizing left and it comes out in less than a month, which is very nerve wracking and exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so is, have you always been interested in like, uh, like a production of this type, like, or as, as like a editor position? Not really. I am. Um... Actually, before before um, like December last year, I I had hardly known anything about the literary magazine area or community. Um, I I hadn't really read lit mags at all. Um, now I read a few, um, uh, but then this year I I learned more about it, and I learned it's generally the place that writers will start to get their work out there. And I I now have several publications in literary magazines and um but no i'd never really considered the uh excuse me considered it as a as a possibility uh, do you think this is going to be like are, are you hoping to make this a long-term project or is this going to be until you i guess find something else you want to do i i am thinking it'll be a long-term project um you know there's always a chance i'll decide someday i i'm done i don't want to do it anymore, but I I do hope it could continue without me. I would I would I do eventually want to find maybe a co-editor or someone to pass it along to in part. You know, right, right. Yeah, that'd be uh, that's always the ideal is if you can have like a self-perpetuating kind of pro project, eh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you mentioned poetry. Is there also like going to be like stories or? Uh, yeah. What kind of um, articles or, or writing is going to be in it? Yeah, so we publish, I say we because that's how you phrase things, but it's just me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Ruler royal list. we. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rulerless will be uh, publishing um, poetry, fiction, and visual art um, that's in the spirit of, of liberation in general. I don't think there's any, there's much that's explicitly anarchist in this first issue, but it's all, okay. you know, in the realm of it. And there's, uh, which I thought there'd be more, but I actually only settled on two short stories that I decided were good enough for the first issue. So there's something like um, two short stories, uh, like 11 or 12 poems, and then like eight uh, works of visual art. Oh, wow. Yeah. All by different contributors? Um, let's see. There's 25 works by 20 contributors. Oh, wow. That's... How did you reach out to the uh, people to get their content? Did you just put the word out that you were looking for stuff? Yeah, I just I just started the I made the website and I started the Twitter account, and it, it just um, it got a lot of attention really quickly. That's awesome. I, um, I think partly because I had already connected 
with some some pretty well-known anarchists on on Twitter, well, on my personal account, like um, Margaret Kiljoy. Okay. For one, she's she's helped with a lot of stuff, not just promotion, and um, she has three works being published in the first issue. Okay. Um, which I have to disclaim it has nothing to do with her help in the project. <laughs> <laughs> they were just quality projects. They were just quality works. Um, and then uh, another big person who has helped it get known is um Robert Evans. Obviously, oh, yeah? a giant following and yeah. um. Yeah, he's he's shared stuff about Rululus. He helps get a lot of the the donations in and stuff. Yeah, I I interviewed Robert a few months ago, and uh, he's a yeah really good uh, voice for anarchism, actually. Cool. Yeah, I, uh, that's interesting. So, yeah. what other where can people like find this content? Like, is it going to be something that is available online on the website or something? Yes, it's going to be freely available online, and you will hopefully be able to purchase print copies, um, which will be through some print-on-demand service. I, I haven't settled on one yet. Okay. Um, and the the website is just rulerless.org. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's often with projects like uh, that have to be crowdfunded or, you know, like the the producers often put them online for free, but sometimes they'll put it behind a paywall as well. Yeah. And then, and then it's hard to know, like, should I pay for this before I get to look at it? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I, I think it would be wrong to put an anarchist literary magazine behind a paywall. It does seem wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, I mean, that's coming from me. I, I, I do put a certain amount of my content behind a paywall, but, uh-huh. I I try to produce as much as I can for free, and if people want content, the content that's behind the paywall, all they have to do is email me. <laughs> uh-huh. I will give it for free. I just, you know, this yeah. is an incentive because I I would yeah. prefer to be doing this, you know, as a career. Like I don't mm-hmm. want to be working in the oil field for the rest of my life, and you know, I'd rather give this my all. Right? I could rather. Yeah, be- yeah. There's definitely a a time and place while we exist under capitalism for putting things behind paywalls, but uh, <laughs> it's not the uh, ideal by any stretch. Yeah. Uh, so, and with rulerless, there's, there's not really any bonus or extra content. It's just, you get it. Yeah. And, um, and there's a few minuscule rewards you can get for higher donations and stuff, but um, uh, it's pretty much, I'm doing my best to make it just completely, free freely oh, available fantastic yeah with the exception of the the print version of course because you'd already have to have to pay the print on demand server so i'm gonna you know hope to try to get a little raise that price a little bit <laughs> get a little off of that right the more like if you can make a little bit to help fund the next issue then you don't have to crowdfund as much and mm-hmm, stuff exactly. like that yeah yeah that's unfortunately under capitalism that's part of making something self-perpetuating is the Mm -hmm. perpetual funds right yeah it's a it's like uh i use i use video editing software and i use audio editing software and that stuff costs money and then even the online uh recording costs money so yeah it's just (laughs) you gotta have some way to pay for things yeah that's right 
hopefully without exploiting anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a, I was delighted to hear that you're uh, you're providing uh, payment to your contributors. Like, how did you determine that? Just based on uh, how much you took in, you gave them each a share, or um, no? I I decided beforehand how much to pay them. Okay, I, I discussed it with um, extensively with my my parents and brother to settle on a on a good amount. So yeah, I guess I would have had to change plans a little if I couldn't secure the funding but i did secure the funding so good thing uh, yeah <laughs> and um and, and i'm i'm very lucky i i think if i had just started another generic literary magazine out of the thousands that already exist i would not have been able to get the kind of crowdfunding that i have because there, there was to use uh the language of the market there was a demand for this kind of <laughs> right, yeah. this kind of project there's not there's not very many places to put uh you know radical uh fiction and poetry and art out there without um i mean with uh with getting paid for it too right yeah yeah, yeah. it's not like it's uh something you can sell to the mainstream right no no <laughs> Uh, so that's interesting that you mentioned your parents helped you figure out how much to pay uh, contributors. Like, are they supportive of this project? Yeah, they're they're very supportive of pretty much everything I do. I'm very lucky to that's have awesome. them, and I'm very lucky to be in a financial position where they can also help out with the funding. You know, they've donated. Um, and I mean, I awesome. I have a I think I have a good perspective with the my financial position because I am very well off, but my, my mother grew up in poverty in the Mexican ghetto. And, uh, but my dad was rich enough to have live in maids. So, okay. So well, quite I'm the contrast in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's quite the difference. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what do they think of your political ideas? Um, they, they respect them. Uh, they, are not quite there, but you know, I've I've talked to them about anarchism for a few years now, and they've uh, they you know we've talked things out. I've gotten better at explaining certain ideas as I've gotten older, and um, we we definitely have a mutual understanding. Um, and they're very mu- they're definitely at least much more anti-capitalist than they used to be. Well, good, good. (laughs) Radicalize your parents. That's they've they've never been they've never been like right wing or anything like that. But you know, kind of in the liberal progressive, um, not not radical area. No, that's cool though. Uh, It's great that they are supportive. At least, like, Mm -hmm. it. I know a lot of parents (laughs) might have reacted poorly to having a, a son claim anti-capitalism even and anarchism is so misunderstood in so many ways Mm -hmm. yeah exactly i mean the the front page of the website is just a little explanation about no anarchism is not bombs and chaos (laughs) right yeah yeah i find that's uh probably one of the hardest myths to overcome is is this idea that anarchy is chaos like Mm -hmm. even even people who identify as anarchists often misuse the term anarchy when in that way, like, I don't know. Yeah. I've I don't seen, know how that works. But. There was a while when I fell into that 
area of saying, oh, anarchism is good, but anarchy means chaos. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I've seen that, but, yeah. Then I, I, then I actually started reading some of the older texts, and I was like, oh, they've always called it anarchy. Yeah, that's right. The The whole anarchy uh, as chaos thing is a product of, like, propaganda from, you know, people who don't like that we threaten their... <laughs> <laughs> the the status quo. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh I don't know, uh have you kept up with mo- with modern like current politics very much? Yeah, I, I follow a lot of that. Um I kind of I kind of alternate between caring more and caring less about um like electoralist kind of stuff and Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, like uh, in the months leading up to the the presidential election here in the U.S., I was I was um, definitely saying a lot of vote Biden kind of stuff to stop Trump. Yeah, but, but um, <laughs> now I'm back with saying, "Oh my God, Biden is terrible." Well, he just declared anarchists terrorists, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's not good. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I was very much for a long time. I was very much in the, uh, okay, just get Trump out, get Trump out camp. And I'm glad that he's out. I don't yeah, want to, I don't want to say that, that he, they shouldn't have voted Biden, but also I understood people. I, I reached a point where I was like, okay, but there are people who literally don't see the difference between the parties, right? Like their mm-hmm. daily lives are not affected by who's president. Yeah. They they have to they go to work they struggle every day to just feed, feed themselves and and when that person says to me I don't see a difference between the parties and my life is not going to change I can't argue with them that's just factually yeah. true yeah. Like, I, I definitely get that I think for me the biggest reason to get Trump out was just the um to help stop the, all the any like federal. Uh, what am, what am I trying to say? Federal, like, anti-LGBT bills. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good reason. There was also, like, I, mean, I don't want to pretend that uh, there wasn't, an, he wasn't exceptionally bad. Like, yeah. <laughs> he was exceptionally bad. It's just that uh, in a long string of bad political leaders in the U.S., they're not, I don't want to give Canada a pass either. We're, yeah. we're just bad, too. <laughs> but in a long string of bad political leaders, I mean, you have an exceptionally bad one now and then. Mm-hmm. But I, I do worry what's gonna what's gonna come after Biden, considering Trump followed Obama. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's hard to know what's gonna come next. Um, <laughs> yeah. Are you? Do you think that? Like, I'm often torn between the idea of like an actual uh, physical revolution where people have to actually do like almost terroristic things to get change and incremental kind of like, let's in, let's vote people in at a grassroots level and try and work our way up through the system and fucking change things properly or according to the current rules. Like where do you fall on this? I, I think they both have a place. I, I would focus on the, I think the best place to focus is ground level practical results, like, you know, helping people better their lives and like uh, mutual aid networks and stuff. Yeah. Mutual aid networks uh, where I think electoralism is most useful is on the 
the like municipal level where you can do the, like where it is at least theoretically possible to do things like um, defund the police. Yeah. You know? um, but I think for the most part, efforts should go to just directly helping people on the ground. Um, and, and, you know, I, I read earlier this year, I read Berkman's um, what is anarchism. Okay. And I really liked his perspective in that, that the revolution is, evolutionary really for most of it it's like it's going to be slow it has to be it requires like a a huge shift in consciousness and it's going it's not going to be like a an insurrection right the everything changes slowly we dismantle things we build things and then there might be struggles through that time and maybe a final kind of struggle uh, but yeah, you know. But I think that for the most part, it's evolutionary. It's evolutionary. Um, but but there will be you know uh, more more physical struggles as well. I uh, I listened to the podcast seriously wrong, and they did a series on the French Revolution. And they one of the things that they really talked about was this idea that a revolution it doesn't happen overnight, right? Like it's mm-hmm. not like, it's not like you storm the castle and you win the day and suddenly society is better. It's a progress. Yeah. Like it's a 30 year project in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And especially with a, with a social revolution, like French revolution was, you know, it had social elements, but it was more, a it was mostly a political revolution, you know, and political insurrection that led to, equally bad conditions in a lot of ways. Um, I really like um, Crime Thinks article against the logic of the guillotine. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's uh, makes a really good point that we... I think we as revolutionaries need to focus on the compassionate side of things. Yeah, that's... Although, I can't deny I love a good guillotine joke. Yeah, <laughs> guillotine jokes. I mean, you know, they're... They're up there, but, <laughs> but as long as uh, I think, as long as there's the the understanding that we, it's probably not a good idea to plan to actually guillotine the rich. Or <laughs> it, it would be more effective to actually find a way to uh, like appropriate their wealth and distribute mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah, and I mean, what would be a worse a worse punishment for someone like Jeff Bezos, like just dying or being forced to like live as a community member? Right. Yeah. Just the same as everybody else after his yeah. life of luxury. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, as the richest man in the world to just another commoner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, I, I also, I often think of like, uh, uh, there's a, there was a group in Quebec and they were called the FLQ. Uh, I can't, I can't remember the exact, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what it st- stood for, but it was like a liberation of, uh, Frank phones. And, uh, they did for a while, they did some pretty dramatic stuff, right? Like they, and they, they did it in such a way and they uh, got a hold of the, mainstream media's narrative in such a way mm. that they could actually get people on their side. But mm. then 
of, of course, as things often do, they go went too far and they kidnapped some people and they killed some people uh, and, and then, <laughs> and, then yeah. and then you lose public support and uh, for a real revolution, I think public support is like vital to what yeah, we need, definitely. right? I yeah, definitely. I think um, it'd be a very bad idea to try and just get like a small group to overthrow <laughs> the government and see what happens next. We're all just gonna die if we do that. Yeah. <laughs> Small groups that'll, that try to that'll result again. in what what most people call anarchy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd just be without without anything. Mm-hmm. So what is what is something like? What do you think is a good tool to uh, educate people and get them on our side? Well, I think. Uh, I, I think one of the biggest areas where the left is lacking is that it's a really great tool with educating people is with stuff like fiction and poetry and, and media in general, like uh, creative media. I, because like most people are never going to read a tome of political theory, you know, <laughs> let alone multiple, right? <laughs> yeah, let alone multiple, to get a, a full understanding of the, the depth of the, of the philosophies. Like what, is most needed, I think, is, I mean, I think this is why I'm doing rulerless, is, um, why did I make my magazine's name so hard to pronounce? Um, <laughs> rulerless. Um, is, 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 you know, promoting these kind of liberatory ideas through the arts. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, the, I, I think probably the best example of this done really well is um the dispossessed by yeah, Arsene i was Haley just Grant. thinking that yeah it's oh that book is so good every anarchist i know has read that book and, yeah. and, and loved it right like uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah it does a, an amazing job of both laying out the problems and benefits to an anarchist society and yeah. it makes it seem like okay it's not perfect it's still good though it's still a great mm-hmm. philosophy <laughs> yeah and one note i really like in the dispossessed is near the end it's talked about how on Oris, you know the capitalist planet for anyone who hasn't read the book um people you know the are the people in the lower classes are not in as bad shape as in the real world um let's talk about you know they say the poor are not so poor People have some good amount of freedom, but it didn't matter because they want real freedom. Right. You know? Yeah. You can still, well, it's, it's similar to when people say like, okay, but uh, Canada and the U S are still pretty nice countries to live in compared to some others. And it's like, okay, sure. But that doesn't make it good enough, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like how how limited is your imagination that what we have is the only thing we can have? <laughs> yeah. I mean, capitalism is, uh, you know, one of the youngest systems in existence. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's been so many before it. I'm sure there will be plenty after it. Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm almost certain of that. <laughs> So we're currently almost destroying the planet. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I think that I don't think the Earth will be comp- will become uninhabitable. I think there will be a lot of death and destruction and natural disasters and a lot of very very bad things from climate change. I think 
but I think uh, people will still survive and will still build better things. I mean, it's times of crises, especially we saw this last summer a lot. It's times of crises that really bring people together the most. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I think also like when it's, when we're down, when people are down and like the systems of government and whatever, they've failed to do certain things. People just tend to support each other. Yeah. And and that's, what's going to make humanity survive. That's what's going to keep things going. Yeah, exactly. You know, we think we're, we, while we definitely have the capacity to the a very, a very human and very inherent capacity to control and dominate and compete. I think, uh, I, I think cooperation is, is more fundamental. Yeah. I mean, not to get, I guess not to draw too much speculation, but I'm pretty sure that if we look back through the evolution of humanity, the reason that we thrived is because we cooperated. Oh, yeah. And, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, and why, what el- What other purpose could society even serve? <laughs> Honestly. And to help people. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I've been reading Debt by David Graeber. Um, okay. And he definitely talks about, you know, the pre, pre-civilization, pre-state uh, societies we're not these like perfect communistic, you know, right. uh, societies that a lot of, uh, a lot of leftists imagine them to be. There were, there were things like there was domination and there was hierarchy and there was um, trade and, and, uh, and forms of proto currency and that kind of thing. Right. But, but there have also been plenty of communities, both pre and in civilization that have um that have been highly communistic or highly anarchistic and you know i think people just i think i think people are very diverse people can do a lot of different things and people can choose to do those things yep yeah and why like the the argument i often have with my now 70 year old father is <laughs> Why would we continue to perpetuate a system that encourages the worst impulses of our system? Yeah. You know, like if you have a system that if you have people who have a dominant type mentality and you have a system that pays those people, uh, you know, gives them rewards for having that dominance idea, then you're going to have more dominance rising up to the top and you're going to have more Mm -hmm. people suffering. And yeah, it's just like, we could, if we wanted to, structure society in such a way that dominance isn't rewarded in that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, there's a great quote. I forgot who said it, but, you know, I have my own ideas of how, a, you know, anarchist society should function, you know. But ultimately, ultimately, I just want a world where the only thing that's impossible is domination. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, and like, uh, I think, a, I think I've heard this on YouTube or something too, is like, we don't actually have to have every single answer to every single objection that people have Yeah, <laughs> because this is something that will be figured. Like these are things we'll figure out, uh, collectively. Yeah. And I, I definitely think there's, 
I think we should theorize about how we will solve yep. different problems, but yeah, but we don't need to have a, a perfect blueprint, especially because, I mean, <laughs> anarchism isn't really an end goal, right? Like it's more of a process. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, I I feel like it wouldn't it wouldn't be totally anarchic to try to have a blueprint of what society should exactly look like. <laughs> right. And then to dictate to other people how they need to behave in order to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. Just, just reinventing hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. It seems kind of the opposite of what we want. <laughs> we don't have any counter propaganda, but we do have a comrade that you want to shout out. Uh, yeah. The uh, literary magazine, Black Cat Magazine. So let me, uh, tell me about that. Um, well, around the same time I started Rulerless, um, a little bit after, I think, um, I found on Twitter, Black Cat Magazine and started up. And it, it's really interesting when they started up around the same time because they're also an, an anarchist revolutionary magazine. Um, obviously the, the Black Cat image comes from the anarchist syndicalist uh, imagery right. and um yeah they're it's run by really great people um they also pay their contributors cool i, I actually have a they they produced their first issue way faster than i did that's probably because they have multiple people working on it but um they um uh, i actually have a, a poem published in their first issue nice um and yeah they're just all around uh all around good people doing similar stuff to rulerless i think um i think it's always good for there to be more of this <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, so you don't view yourself in competition with them <laughs> no <laughs> obviously you know there is that innate kind of you know thing that social media exploits oh they now suddenly have more followers than me yeah yeah but, yeah, yeah yeah but why did their like their posts get more likes or whatever yeah <laughs> But um, yeah. But no, I I do my best to think of myself very much as in cooperation with them, not that's competition. Awesome. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the thing, right? Yeah, and <laughs> and I think it's worked out well. There are actually some some names that are in both the first issues that I saw, and one poem that was actually submitted to Rulerless that I had to pass up because it didn't quite fit in with the issue, but it was published in Black Cat. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. That's good. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I think, I think we've done a, a good job of demonstrating that uh, a young person can both start a project and articulate what it's for, <laughs> with a, you know, um, where can people find your stuff? Um, rulerless can be found at rulerless.org and on Twitter at rulerlessmag. And then I, uh, can be found at byronlopezellington.com excuse me and on twitter at um byronimus which is like my first name byron plus onimus which is the opposite of anonymous yeah. <laughs> that works <laughs> so is there anything that uh you can think of that i didn't ask you about that you uh want to let people know about hmm well i'll say Rulerless issue one, the summer 2021 issue will be coming out on August 1st online and hopefully in print on that same day too, but the print version may be delayed. 
and we're currently accepting donations for issue two, uh, which that can be found on the donate page on the website. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's about it. Uh, yeah. Oh, wait. Issue issue two submissions, actually, will be opening m- mid-next month. Okay, so mid-August? Uh, yeah, I think August 15th okay. through September 15th will be uh, when submissions will be open for issue two. Awesome. Well, I'm not, I'm not a writer myself, but, uh, I'm sure that I know many. <laughs> so hopefully we can get, yeah, yeah, hopefully we can get you some submissions and, uh, some contributors. Yeah. 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 Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, uh, I guess have a great day. Yeah, you too. All right. So that's it for the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Up next is going to be Ask an Anarchist with myself and my friend Renee, and then Red Reviews with Justin Clark. Uh, where do you want to start? <laughs> well, let's just start with like the basic premise, because like that's the thing. Is I was as you, <laughs> I'll try to be funny just for a minute, but every time <laughs> you're posting and I read some of your comments or listen to your podcast to me it's it just sounds like either a monty python sketch come to life (laughs) (laughs) old woman man ma'am sorry what knight lives in that castle over there i'm 37 what i'm 37 i'm not old well i can't just call you ma'am you could say dennis I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Oh, how'd you do? How do you do, good lady? I am Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, realize... please, good people. I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how'd you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! 
but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help, help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? Yeah, the funny thing about that sketch, actually, is that some of the language they use is literally, like, the way that anarchists describe various things that they believe. Like, it's not, you know, it's not that far off of, like, an actual philosophy. <laughs> so, so well, I guess... That's probably is what makes it funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I guess, uh, the basics. Uh, so do you want like a, a just a definition, a philosophical de- definition um, or like uh, where do you want to start? We'll start with that. Like, cause I looked at a little bit where they, let's just start with uh, like, like I said, explaining anarchy to an idiot. So let's start with the basics. <laughs> okay. So just the basics. Cause like, I mean the, the, I think the, right, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was, all I was going to say is like, cause I mean, I think the problem is, is a lot of it is maybe little bit uh gets co-opted by stuff like all i can think of is you know crust punks yelling about anarchy and i don't know if even they understand it so start with the basic uh so you you may or may not know the word anarchy literally just means without rulers uh so that's where it starts right um anarchists believe that nobody should rule over another human being uh, that includes kings, queens, like there shouldn't be kings or queens or like even a president isn't more, shouldn't get to dictate to a uh, citizen what they, how they live, what they do in their day-to-day life or in anything really. Uh, everything is based on like a consent sort of thing. Like if you ask me to do a thing and I agree to do it, then we have agreed to do this, but you don't get to order me to do a thing. So that's the sort of the the fundamental of it, and then you can get you can get really bogged down in the details of like uh, say um, how do we run a society that way, right? But uh, yeah, but I think like the fundamental start is we don't believe in rulers, and that translates to a lot of people say we don't believe in uh, authority or we don't believe in the state, or we don't believe in hierarchy. Uh, There's various debates amongst anarchists about how those things play in, but uh, because, as you may know, uh, there are people who consider themselves anarcho-capitalists or uh, right-wing libertarians. They believe in a small state just big enough to maintain uh, corporate power. Uh, which a left-wing anarchist such as myself thinks is antithetical to the tenets of anti-authority and anarchy. <laughs> so am I, am I making sense so far? Am I losing you? Well, I swear I got, <laughs> no, no, it, I, I follow you. I just, it, like, uh, like I said, I think that's where, when I started looking into it, all these little subtle, little divi- deviations is where, where I'm like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, it it gets. It's like, it can get it's like trying to define sanity. Like, there's a different branch. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's there's, right. There's a different form of Christianity for every common, the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, exactly. Although uh, most anarchists have uh, a basic agreement on, uh, like, anarcho-capitalists are really the only uh, ones that are outside of the uh, main anarchist philosophy. All the other ones have the same fundamentals, which is like the anti-authority thing. So I don't know. Does that bring up any other any questions for you? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> well now now I slide into like almost going against it, but no, that that kind of clarifies it. Other than you said, I like I was watching who's it uh, a guy named Michael Malice. I don't know if you know him. Nope. No, it doesn't ring a bell. I don't know. He's on <laughs> he's on YouTube. Apparently, 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 he's an author and he's a big anarchist author. I don't know. Just quick search okay. on YouTube and he came up and it just seemed like it was a lot of a lot of that like where it's like every relationship is an anarchist relationship because we agree to it and it's like yeah that's fine on a one-to-one basis but you start getting into larger groups and nah, I don't know if yeah, that's going to work yeah, <laughs> yeah Folks, there's, there's a variety of ways that anarchists think that we should run our society uh, so that we increase the amount of consent and democracy and reduce the amount of uh, dictatorship, which we agree with socialists in that we think that the workplace should be democratically run and that there doesn't need to be necessarily a, a, a quote unquote owner or boss, right? Where all the workers own a portion of the company and they all, you know, vote on major aspects of changes for what the way the company is run and they're all uh <clears throat> entitled to a equal share of what the profits might be which would be i guess because they wouldn't be necessarily working for wages they would be working for the company for profits right because they're all owners so <clears throat> that's socialism and anarchist most anarchists are socialists as well okay uh, that's ask an anarchist i hope that uh if you are a person with any questions about anarchism that you uh, that helped a little bit, if you have any questions for me, make sure to send me a message on uh, uh, like an email, mind of a skeptical leftist at gmail.com or any social media site. My uh, Twitter is at skeptical lefty and you can message the Facebook page, uh, mind of a skeptical leftist. And if I, if you have any questions about anarchism, I'll try to answer them. So now on to Red Reviews with Justin Clark. Hi and welcome to uh, Red Reviews number seven. Well yeah. on our way to ten. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is really great. Um, I'm in my I'm in a different shirt today. Um, I have my new computer chair. We're we're good to go. <laughs> Deadly. Yeah, that's right. I'm really excited about tonight. So. This one kind of coincides. Today, we're recording this on the 6th of July. I know it will come out later in the month or whatever, but we're recording this the 6th of July. So the 4th of July, uh, the date of America's independence, happened on um, Sunday. And I decided that to sort of coincide with the month of July, we would do um, reviews sort of related kind of sort of to American history um, or policy. So... Tonight, we're going to be reviewing a sort of classic of American literature that I think still has an incredible amount of relevance and is important. 
and that is um, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, um, which is something I actually never read until earlier this year. It was a book I never got to. I, I'd read things of Frederick Douglass's. Right. Um, this edition that I have is very cool. It was published by Borders before Borders went out of business. I bought it at a Goodwill, but... And not only does it have the narrative of, of, of the life of Frederick Douglass, which is his first autobiography. Frederick Douglass in his life wrote three autobiographies, and each one sort of catches you up to where he is now. So he wrote Narrative of the Life, which came out, I think, in like 1845. And then he wrote a second autobiography called My Bondage and My Freedom, um, which I think takes you up through maybe like the 1860s or 70s. And then the last one, which is, um, I think, called The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, which is like the big, final, big one, because um, he lived until uh, into the early 1890s. So... He lived a very long life, a very empower, a powerful and important life in the history of the United States. Okay. Um, for those who are not aware, Frederick Douglass was a former enslaved person um, who fled, slave, uh, fled being enslaved and eventually made his way to New England. Um, he had considered going to Canada, but eventually made his way to New England. I think he did live in Canada for a while, but then came back. Um, okay. Uh, founded a influential newspaper in the 19th century called the North Star, which you can actually read online um, through the Library of Congress. Very cool. Um, it was very much molded on the model of William Lloyd Garrison, um, who was the abolitionist uh, activist and publisher who wrote, who published the legendary newspaper, The Liberator. Um, William Lloyd Garrison wrote the introduction to this book, um, in the introduction to the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Okay. Um, and and this edition comes with the narrative. It also comes with a fiction piece that Frederick Douglass wrote called The Heroic Slave, um, which by all accounts is the first published um, fictional slave narrative in the United States. And it was published in 1853. So that's like the first half of the book. And the second half of the book is a, is a collection of essays and speeches that he gave throughout his life. And there's so many different ways to, to understand and read through the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass and to read his work. But we're going to focus on a couple things tonight because I think they go really hand in hand with the, the sort of guiding idea of this podcast, right? One of them is his critique of religion. Okay. Um, so just up front, like Douglass was not an atheist. Um, he was not, we're not rewriting and, the history. <laughs> we're not rewriting history. And in fact, at the end of the narrative, at the end of the narrative, he actually writes this extensive appendix, which is sort of a last chapter of the book where he lays out why he's not an atheist. He basically says like, if you've read up okay. to this point, you would have assumed that I hate religion or that I hate Christianity and I don't. Um, and so, Frederick Douglass's spirituality and religion is very interesting. I mean, I would basically describe him. I think the best way to describe him is as a sort of small L liberal Christian. Okay. Um, but I also think he had sort of like deistic influences. Clearly he was influenced by the sort of intellectual currents of his, of his time, which is the mid 19th century. So he's very much influenced by not just the second great awakening in the United States, which is this massive religious revival. that starts in sort of the 1830s makes its way up through the um, the 1840s and 50s. But he's also very much influenced by the sort of free-thinking elements that are around him. 
uh, you know, particularly sort of, you know, people like Robert Ingersoll, um, who I've written about extensively, the great agnostic. Um, you've probably, if you've heard my previous podcast with Coriel about Douglas, about Ingersoll rather, um, Ingersoll and Frederick Douglass met. Um, they had, I think, I can't remember exactly when it was, maybe the 18, well, it would have had to have been in the 18, it had to have been the 1860s or 70s because it was in Peoria, Illinois when, when Ingersoll was living in Illinois. So it would have been okay. before 1876 or something like that. Um, but, uh, Frederick Douglass was coming in town. He needed a, he was giving a lecture. He needed a place to stay and he didn't have a place to stay. And Ingersoll said, Hey, you can stay with me. And that was a big deal. Like in, right. you know, 1860s, 1870s, you know, Peoria, Illinois, where this wealthy white man, let, you know, an African-American former enslaved person stay at his house. Right. Like that was a big deal. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass also met Lincoln. He met President Lincoln. You know, there's a whole, there's numerous books about their sort of acquaintance. Um, but, you know, Frederick Douglass was sort of uh, one of the sort of the consciences of American life in the 19th century. Because his life is, fa- I mean, he covers most of the 19th century. Um, and we can get into the sort of the better part of the narrative now. Um, he was born somewhere in between 1817 and 1818. He doesn't know his exact day. Okay. As many slaves did not, form, right. as many enslaved people didn't know, they didn't know their birthday. Um, I think at some point he settled on Valentine's Day, 1817 as his birthday. Sure. That's a good day. Um, yeah. He was born... Um, uh, he was he was born George Washington Augustus Bailey um, in a near and this first sentence of the narrative is I was born in Tuckahoe near Hillsborough, and about twelve miles from Easton in Talbot County Maryland. I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen my authentic record containing it. By far the longest part of the slaves, larger part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs, and it is the wish of most masters, within my knowledge, to keep their slaves thus ignorant. Mm. So. He lives most of his life as an enslaved person in the state of Maryland. I mean, almost all of it in the state of Maryland. And the narrative follows his life up until about 1845. Okay. Um, and so he lives with the Auld family. And he talks about how this is how he learned to read. The wife of, of his master um, sort of provided him with the sort of basic tools to learn how to read. Okay. But then they realized how important it was to keep a slave ignorant. Cause that was, that's a big theme of the book is that, you know, ignorance is the way in which the slave masters maintain control over the, over slaves. Right. And so over time he, he writes really painfully in the, in the narrative about how this woman who had once been so warm and kind to him, over time becomes an absolute monster and it's to maintain this sort of power relationship um, and becomes just as bad. Right. The, the other thing I think that's really crucial to understand too, is that he, and this goes into one of the major themes we can talk about tonight, which is this idea of his critique of religion. So Douglas's view of religion is very much influenced by his time as an enslaved person. And one of the things that is, uh, I think, a, a hallmark throughout his work is this real critique of what he saw as the religion of the Southern slave aristocracy. Right. That there were sort of two Christianities, right? 
There's the in, in the 19th century, there's the Christianity of, say, like someone like a William Louis Garrison or a Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, this sort of, um, you know, or a John Brown, you know, which uh, there's a whole essay, a whole speech that Douglas gave about John Brown, you know, the legendary um, uh, activist who raided uh, Harper's Ferry, Virginia, a military garrison there with a with a bunch of freed slaves to try to lead a slave revolt. He was captured and, and, and executed for his actions. And in the American political culture, particularly on the left, and I think anybody on the political left sort of sees John Brown in very reverent tones. Right, yeah. Um, and the John Brown very, gun club and all. Isn't yeah. That, isn't that a one? <laughs> yeah, John Brown's Body is a song that was sung a lot during the Civil War. Okay. Um, but Douglas wrote a speech about him. W.E.B. Du Bois, who was another influential African-American intellectual at the turn of the 20th century, wrote an entire book on John Brown. Um, and so there's that kind of that that form of Christianity, which is very much influenced by the sort of what Cornell West, the philosopher, activist and theologian would call the prophetic fire. This idea that Christianity is the, you know, the 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 tool with which you activate and achieve social justice. You use Christianity as a means to do that. It's also called liberation theology. Right. Yeah. So that's, and that's, I would say that's the tradition that Douglas sees himself in is this idea of using spirituality as a means to achieve not just personal spiritual fulfillment, but also a sense of social justice. Right. So that's the version of, of Doug, of Christianity that Douglas believes, but there's the other version of Christianity which was the dominant form of Christianity in the United States during the slave era. And I would argue it still is today. I'm sorry. I have a hair on my face. It's like bothering me. Sorry about that. Sorry. You'll have to cut that out. <laughs> no worries. Um, there, so there's this other strain of Christianity in the United States, which is far more dominant. And I would argue still more dominant today, which is used as the sort of idiot, as we've discussed on previous episodes, the phrase I like to use a lot is ideological architecture. It's the sort of ideological architecture upon which prejudice sits on. Mm. And he writes about that very, very poignantly and eloquently about his experiences. So in the sort of in the middle of the narrative, I'm quoting from him. He says, I assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders find the strongest protection. Were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery, next to that enslavement, I should regard being the slave of a righteous, of a religious master, I should regard being the slave of a religious master the greatest calamity that could befall me. For all, for of all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, relig religious slaveholders are the worst. And in fact, this is very much true with arguably his worst master, his worst enslaver, which was a man named Mr. Covey. And a good chunk of the narrative takes place on this plantation okay. that Mr. Covey owned. So for most of Frederick Douglass's life, his ver his experience of being an enslaved person was bad. There's no good. There's no version of being you know happy or a right. Good, you know, but his was much more. It was it was relatively better than some experiences. 
you know, he basically, you know, for a good chunk of his early teenage years and his early, you know, sort of adolescence, he spent, you know, his life as a, as a slave, enslaved person in sort of downtown Baltimore. This is where he learned how to read. Okay. Um, and it's also, it's also, um, it's also the moment where he, he talks about when he's a young, young boy in Baltimore, he, it's the first time that he saw white people in real abject poverty. And he had never seen that before. And that kind of influenced him. He went, wow, I didn't think white people lived in poverty. Or I didn't think they would have this level of sort of, and he talked about giving them food and, and, oh, wow. and things like that. So they were sort of what they, you know, what they would call the sort of colloquialism is a uh, street urchins, you know? Right. Right. Um, and, but his experience in slavery gets dramatically worse when he becomes uh, un- when he goes under the 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 enslavement of Mr. Covey. Mr. Covey was an extremely religious man. Right. Um, before that, he was sort of a drunk and and uh, a sort of a brute. But he gets religion, and and true to Douglas's form, he makes a point of saying that you know he thought he's like I thought for a minute him getting religion would make him better. It actually made him worse. Right. And so he thought, this inc- yeah, you yeah. think for a minute that he's going to, oh, maybe he'll buy into the treat fellow man kindness and all like <laughs> all yes. this love thy neighbor stuff. But instead, it's the uh, spare the rod crap. Yeah, it's the, you know, it's the you can beat the living hell out of your slave. And as long as they get uh, up in a day, then you're good. Yeah, it's that kind of view of the Bible, right? And so he goes through this, you know, he talks about how he loses pretty much his will to live. Um, you know, he, he's like, I've been reduced to a brute. He talks about how, you know, Mr. Covey's main goal with me was to break me and he achieved it. Oh, um, and, and got to a point where I didn't want to read. I didn't want to do anything. And he kind of has this sort of um, real turning point living in, in the under Mr. Covey where um, – he um, he gets in a fight with him. You know, they, they argue about something. Uh, I forget exactly what it is, but they argue about something and it leads into a fight. And and, you know, Frederick Douglass was told, you know, hey, let's, uh, you know, by someone else, I'm going to give you a switch, basically like a little strap. And you can put that in your pocket, you know, to make sure you always have your switch with you. Well, then he proceeds to use that switch to beat the shit out of Mr. Covey. Oh geez, um, which is awesome. So there's this great scene in the book where he ta- where he basically whips this guy's ass, and he and then he makes a point of saying like, "I was never whipped after that." Um, wow. <laughs> and you know, basically, he kind of he, he he put that guy in his place. It's it's fortunate that it went that way. <laughs> yeah, right. Because he was pretty much, and because he was basically broken, he's like, "Look, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. I don't care." And there's there's um, a certain level of I don't know how to describe this, but there's a certain level of liberation in not caring anymore. You right. know, you, you when you're broken so much, it, it gets you to a place where you're, you're sort of internally free, even if you're not externally free. Yeah, the idea that you have nothing left to lose, sort yep. of thing. Yep. And so eventually, he. He ends because the way his his contract, Mr. Covey, worked was basically he was contracted out by his original slave hole, you know, his original masters. They contracted him out, I think, for like a year to live there to do that work and then come back. So he's done with Mr. Covey. He then goes to another master who's not as bad, but still sucks, obviously. 
And um, at this point, he's like, I'm ready. Like, I'm ready to I'm ready to get free. I'm ready to be done. And he does it. You know, he eventually escapes. What he does is he becomes sort of a day laborer where he goes out. He's trusted with like tools and clothes and he's trusted to go out, work a day, get a day's wage, bring it back to the master. And he builds up this sort of trust with his with his uh, enslaver. Okay. And at some point he starts to like put money to the side and he re- and then he's like, I'm going to put enough money aside and I'm going to figure out and then I'm eventually going to go. And that's exactly what happens to him. Wow. And then he eventually ends up in, I think, the city of New Salem. Um, and and yeah, he says in eight, it's around 1838 where he really finally leaves. Um, and no, not New Salem. Uh, he ends up in New Bedford. Okay. Um, and and so this is where he gets his name. So as I said to you earlier, his name, his birth name was um, Frederick uh, George Augustus, Frederick Washington Augustus Bailey was his okay. was his name. And I'm trying to find hold on because it's a kind of a beautiful story. Um, and. Yeah, Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey was the name he was given. The other little side point that's really important that I forgot when we started our discussion this evening is that, and this is a this is actually a, an interesting point which I which is important to understand, which is that some of the more influential and historically, um, I guess, understood or historically important figures within the sort of Black freedom struggle in America have been mixed race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Frederick Douglass was no exception. Um, his father was white and his mother was black. Uh, and so you can kind of figure out where this was going. Um, there were speculations as to whether or not his, 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 um, his mother's slave master was his father. Of course. Um, no one knows for sure, but that's something that's speculated upon and he never learned for sure. Um, but Bailey was the name that he got from his mother. Okay. And so when he comes to... Uh, the free world and he, and he finally escapes being enslaved, he decides to um, give up um, the name Bailey and, and sort of create a new name for his life. And this is where he, his friend, a guy named Mr. Ruggles, um, says, hey, I've been reading this thing called The Lady of the Lake. And, um, you know, and the, the and it and in the Lady of the Lake, there's this person named Douglas with two S's. And, you know, oh, it's Mr. Johnson, who was a friend of Mr. Rebels's. Mr. Okay. When I, so this is what he says. When I got to New Bedford, I found it necessary again to change my name. The reason of this necessity was there were so many Johnsons in New Bedford, it was already quite difficult to distinguish between them. So originally he takes the name Frederick Johnson, then realizes, holy shit, there's a bunch of Johnsons. I should probably take a name that's more... more um, uh, distinguished, not distinguished, but more delineating. It's more unique. And so Mr. Johnson, um, he, he, he kept Frederick cause he said he wanted to hold on to some sense of his identity, but he wanted to change his last name. And so Mr. Johnson had just been reading the lady of the lake and at once suggested that my name be Douglas from that time until now I've been called Frederick, du- Frederick Douglas. And as I am more widely known by that name than by either of the others, I shall continue to use it as my own, which is what he used for the rest of his life. So that's how he gets his last name. Okay. Um, and from there, he, um, you know, he eventually makes his way. He, he was, 
he was planning on being sort of a shipmate person, but then there were certain laws against it. And so he couldn't. So eventually he leaves New Bedford. And I do think he lives in Canada for time. Um, and then eventually makes his way, I think, to like, I think like Philadelphia or something like that. Um, there's an excellent biography of Frederick Douglass. I've not read, but I, I know it's very, very good. Um, called Prophet of Freedom by David Blight. Um, I have it on my shelf. It's one of those I've not gotten around to. It's an enormous book. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's kind of like the definitive biography of Frederick Douglass. Okay. And um, written by a Douglas scholar. And so you can go into kind of like how his life moves. Because this book really doesn't give you a good sense of like where he, like biographically beyond what you, what you read. Right. It's and more about how he, how he's, what he's thinking when he's uh, living, I guess. <laughs> yeah. What he's, expe- yeah. And so that's pretty much the narrative in a nutshell. You know, he goes through a lot of you know, trials and tribulations. He talks about. You know, you know, as a young boy being fed cornmeal from a trough, like there's all kinds of really sort of horrible shit in it, you know, like, um, but then he okay, goes yeah. on, but then he constantly goes on to reiterate and tell you like, hey, what I'm telling you is bad, but it's only a fraction of what I've ever seen in my life and only a fraction of what I've ever personally experienced. So there's always worse, but it just wow, gives yeah. you, but it just gives you an insight into where he is. And then I wanted to spend a second talking about the appendix, which I talked about earlier, which is, so he spends a lot of the book criticizing Christianity as practiced by, by slaveholders, by right. the enslavers. So then he makes a point of sort of saying in the band, hey, I'm not anti-religious. Here's what I think. And so, you know, you know, he, he, there's a really short quote that's pretty good where he said, the man who wields the blood clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. It's very good. I mean, he, 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 he's Douglas throughout his life is very, very good at underscoring the central contradiction of the American experiment which is this idea that we are a country that's supposedly founded on liberty. And yet when we were founded, there were millions of people who were enslaved. And in fact, the majority of the people who signed the declaration of independence and signed the constitution were in fact slave owners. Yeah. And so he constantly hammers this point, which is that, you know, you say that you believe in enlightenment. You say you believe in liberty. You say you believe in Christianity. But what you really believe in is using these as a cudgel by which you can keep people enslaved. And I think that's very telling. I think that's a very, yeah. I think, and there are other great writers who have hit on these contradictions later on. Obviously, W.B. Du Bois, Malcolm X, Angela Davis, yeah. you know, and recently Ibram Kendi. Uh, with, right, yep. you know, stand from the beginning and, and how, to, how to be an anti-racist, you know, there's a rich tradition of exposing and, and, and really underscoring this core contradiction. And, but I want to say like, you know, you know, he basically says like, this is a long phrase, but it basically paragraph, but it gives you a sense of where he's at. He says, okay. what I have said respecting and against religion, I mean, strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of, a, uh, is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. 
To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, the grossest of all libels. And so, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty indicting phrase. It's a pretty indicting passage, yeah. which, which I think is really important. And if you look at the people in the United States who are the most fucking pious, generally they are the ones who are the most corrupt Right up till today, yeah. (laughs) You know, and uh, right up to today, they are the most corrupt, venal, immoral, disgusting people. And, and so, and, and, and so I think it's important. And that's not all people who are religious, but it's, there's a version of Christianity in this country that goes back to the founding, which is like this. And I think the best way to explain it is the Christianity, the slave owner. Right. It's the Christianity, the enslaver. And you know, I think that applies to the sort of right-wing zealotry, you know, zealous Christianity of the United States or Canada or whatever. It's, it's the Christianity yep. of the slaveholder or it's the religion of the slaveholder. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, it's it's really interesting because there t- there's even a phrase and I can't remember exactly. I don't think it's in the narrative. I actually think it's in another uh, an essay that he wrote called The Church and Prejudice. Okay. And no, it's not in the Church of Presidents. It's great, though. Let me see if I can find it. It's awesome because he basically says at some point, he said, I would rather be an atheist than be a Christian like these people. Right. And it's, and it's great. Like, uh, let's see if I can find it. Hold on. But yeah, so that's, you know, that's kind of where, let's see. Ah, here we go. This is actually from the most important speech that's in this collection, which is, um, the meaning of July 4th for the Negro or, or what is what, what to the slave is the 4th of July it has a bunch of different titles, but this is a speech that he gives, um, in 18, uh, 18, I think 55, 1852, okay. 1852, where he's asked to talk about the 4th of July. And, <laughs> and he basically says, are you, do you mock me with asking me to talk about the 4th of July holiday? Right. That has no fucking meaning to me. And, but basically he says, um, you know, for my part, I would say, welcome infidelity, welcome atheism, welcome anything in preference to the gospel as preached by those divines, meaning the slave owners. They convert the very name of religion into an engine of tyranny and barbarous cruelty and serve to confirm more infidels in this age than all the infidel writings of Thomas Paine, Voltaire, and Bolingbroke put together have done. Now, for those who don't know, Thomas Paine was, uh, you know, arguably the greatest founding father because he wasn't a slave owning piece of shit. Um, and actually kind of practiced what he preached. He wrote common sense, which was one of the pamphlets that sort of kicked off the American revolution. He wrote rights of man. And then he also wrote the age of reason, which is a criticism of Christianity because he was a deist. Um, Voltaire, same thing. Enlightenment thinker from the 18th century, French thinker wrote Candide. Um, and then Bolingbroke, I think is, Robert Bolingbroke, who was an English radical. Um, okay. So he's kind of hitting all bases. But I think it's very telling that he's like, I would rather be an atheist than be a Christian like the slave owners. I think that's kind of cool. It's kind of cool to read that. And I imagine people, you know, sort of 
uh, middle class white people hearing that in 1852 were probably like shocked to hear something like that. Right, right. Yeah, that's but a very extreme thing to say at that time, for sure. Yeah, but it, it, but it's right. And so, you know, and what I find fascinating is that he actually goes out of his way to like, actually like, say kind things about the founders. Like he's, like he's not like totally against them, like say we might be. But but he's he tries to very much temper how he feels until he gets to this really great paragraph, which is probably the most influential one, um, which is that what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. You boasted liberty and unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are, to him, mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace the nation of savages. This is not a nation on the earth. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this hour. So it's like, yeah, I mean, he hits on it. It's 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 damning in the sense that, like, again, it's that contradiction, yeah. which we still have to deal with today, which is that this country, the United States, was founded on settler colonialism and white supremacy. Yeah. Period. And. He's hitting on it right there, but he's also like celebrating what the ideas of the revolution were that were good. You know, the right. ideas of liberty, the ideas of equality, the ideas of freedom of conscience and freedom of speech, all the liberties, which are supposed to be a, in, a, an important part of everyone's lives are only really given to a certain segment of the population. Yeah. And to, to have a day to celebrate, while you have millions in bondage is, as he says, it's, you know, it's but a joke, yeah. you know? Um, and it's, it's, I think it's pretty, you know, it's pretty important to understand that he's not pulling punches. Right. And, and so it, it's, it's kind of really compelling to read something from 1852 which is both extremely eloquent, but also very easy to understand. That's kind of the thing that's kind of beautiful of all the best of American writing, whether it's Frederick Douglass or Thomas Paine or Robert Ingersoll, is that they wrote to be read out loud. So it's really fun to read out loud and it's easy to understand when read aloud. Right. Um, and so, you know, he has a very unique singular voice that's all his own and it's both beautiful and fiery and prophetic and inspirational and also very deeply harrowing and, and, and frightening because you realize what he had experienced. That's awesome. I mean, what he experienced isn't awesome, but yeah, <laughs> but it's awesome that, uh, that he was able to write, uh, his narrative so that we could read it later on. Yeah. It's amazing. And be, and become, one of the most sought after public speakers in his age. Right. Um, and, uh, cause I think he lived until 1892 or 95. So he lives well into the 1890s and writes and speaks well into the 1890s. Um, 
And um, oh, one other side little side fact that's interesting is I think it's either his grandson or his great great grandson became a world renowned concert violinist. Okay, that's interesting. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, (laughs) I think there's like a picture of them together. But but yes, Um, but yeah, Frederick Douglass was someone. You know, it's kind of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, you know, it's kind of American scripture. It's, you know, you have the sort of secular saints of American life, and he's one of them. You know, it's him, Thomas Paine, uh, Lincoln, Emerson, Elizabeth, you know, like, um, you know, Lucretia Mott. Like, these people are sort of, they're moral guides, you know, And, and, and they're far ahead of their time. And so there's a bunch of other speeches in this book. There's one where he talks about, um uh what 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 is it i think it's called we have decided to stay which is his critique of um it's his critique of colonization oh, yeah. the idea of of getting getting them all out of the united states and he basically says you know i want to say to our white friends that we colored folks have had the subject under consideration and have decided to say which I, you know and he, which gets laughter um, some of these speeches will give you like, here's where he got laughter. Here's where he got applause. Oh, okay. Because a lot of times, the way that speech, the way that speeches were recorded in the 19th century, unless you had the original manuscript, the first almost almost universally, the first way people would read these if they were not um, there to hear them were through newspapers. So a lot of the transcripts of speeches were in newspapers. And then what would happen later is that a small publishing house or whatever would then publish the speech in these little like five, ten cent pamphlets. It was kind of the social media. It was sort of the Twitter of its day where you would get – and Ingersoll right. was a part of this too. Douglas was a part of this. Um, uh, Mark Twain was a part of this where you would sell five, ten cent you know, newspapers, little pamphlets of like here's my latest speech. you know, And – we have decided to stay was one of them. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's, so he wrote that about colonization. He stood up for the right voting rights, um, right after the civil war. Um, and so, you know, and then he spoke well into the 1890s about, you know, he wrote a great essay in here called the color line, um, which is all about sort of the ways in which prejudice continues Right. Often through the guise of sort of inferiority or superiority. So he talks about that a lot. Um, and and yeah, so, you know, Frederick Douglass was one of those people who I'd always sort of you hear about growing up. You know, you see his picture, you hear about his, a little bit about his story. Once you actually read his words, I mean, it's it's there's I don't know about you, but there's something about reading the words of somebody from that era. Because the 19th century is my area of focus right. historically. So reading Douglas was so cathartic because it was like you're witnessing history by reading his work. Right. And I feel really privileged and honored to have been able to read his work. And I think that's cool. part of why I love the power of books. You know, as Carl Sagan said, you know, books are portable magic. And, uh, and I think, I think that's absolutely true. And so I highly recommend people regardless of what edition you get to check out narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. I also highly encourage people, if you're somebody who likes audiobooks and you have Spotify, there is an actual dramatic reading of the entire narrative of the life. Of oh, Frederick that sounds Douglass. awesome. 
Um, <laughs> That's which definitely is, where I'm going to go for that. <laughs> which, is, uh, which is performed by Academy Award winning actor um, uh, Forrest Whitaker. Oh, nice. And there's also, if you're also on Spotify, there's an excellent performance of What to the Slaves of the Fourth of July by amazing, legendary African-American actor Ozzie Davis. His performance is uh, is absolutely incredible. It's just, it's, as Cornel West calls it, it's the prophetic fire. It's just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and powerful and, and just uh, overwhelming. Um, it's slightly abridged the the edition that he that he performed, but you get okay. the gist of it. The stuff that's cut out more of the boring stuff where he sort of provides historical context, but it's excellent. So you can listen to a lot of what I've talked about tonight on Spotify or YouTube. You know, a lot of people right. have done dramatic performances of this stuff um, because, like I said, Frederick Douglass, like many great writers of the nineteenth century, especially in America, wrote to be read aloud. And so I highly recommend checking it out on audio or getting a, you know, you know, it's one of those books you can pull up on Google and read right away. Um, but it's, I think, to understand American slavery, to get a, an, an under, a, somewhat of an understanding of it um, as best as you can. For sure. His, his life and his work are an indispensable part of that learning. Right on. That, that's I, I got nothing to add. <laughs> I, I will definitely be checking that out on uh, Spotify, though. Like, I'm I love a dramatic uh, reenactment or reading. With, yep. You know, so I would have. I mean, be. the narrative that that Forrest Whitaker performs is very good. He performs it more straightforward in his more sort of solemn style, but it's still very good. But the Ozzie Davis one's incredible. I mean, yeah. he's there are some parts of it he's literally screaming it because it's, oh, it's wow. great. Because back in the 19th century, people didn't have microphones. So you stood up on a podium and you had to yell. You had to project right. in order for people to hear you. So there are parts of like where he's like, do you mock me? Like he's like really getting into it. It's incredible. It's absolutely awesome. incredible. The late, great Ozzie Davis. Um, these are recordings that were actually archived by the Smithsonian okay. um, that he did. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, Frederick Douglass was so cool in so many ways and was, like I said, he was the conscience of a nation. And, um, and I think there's so much to learn from him and to understand. And so, yeah. Um, and, uh, so that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> no, sounds good. I guess. The next step is where can people find your content? And <laughs> Sure. So you can find me at justinclark.org. That's my website where I have not only my professional work, but I also have um, my sort of side work that I do. Um, I'm working on a couple of projects right now. One that will probably be coming out later in the fall is an article I'll be writing um, for the Truth Seeker magazine um, about the friendship between Robert Ingersoll and Eugene B. Debs, the socialist um, labor leader, multiple presidential time presidential nominee in the socialist party ticket early 20th century they were good friends they were friends for 20 years almost um and there's so much of what ingersoll was that is a part of who debs was and so i'm going to write about their friendship and the influence of ingersoll and debs so that'll be one of the newer articles i'll have coming out um i also highly encourage people to um, follow me on Instagram. It's uh, at Justin Clark PH for public history. 
my account's private now, um, but you know, if you follow me, I'll check you out. Make sure you're not a bot <laughs> or someone or you know someone posing as a half nude woman trying to get, me, get money out of me. Um, There's lots of those. There's lots of those. <laughs> Tell me about it. I get one of those every other day. Or somebody who wants to do fucking forex trading. I barely we, know what that is. But. We're looking for brand ambassadors for our marijuana, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get in, get into the crypto market. You know, it's yeah, like, no, nah, right. dude, I'm good. I'm good. Um, and then, um, so next time we will be dis- we'll be discussing uh, Richard Wolff's Democracy at Work: A Cure for Capitalism. We're going to be talking worker oh, cool. co-ops next time. Nice. And then um, I think after that, we'll be going back to American history a little bit. We'll be doing Nixon Land by Rick Perlstein, which is all about the late 1960s, early 1970s, the Nixon era, and the sort of emergence of the divisions in American politics today. So that'll be an interesting one. Um, And uh, we're doing Rick Wolf first because I've already finished that book. And the Rick Perlstein book is huge. I I still need to finish it. Okay. Um, So. And then, yeah, and then later in the year, we're going to be doing some classic theory readings. We'll be talking Marx. We'll be talking Lenin. And if I can get the readings done, we'll also be talking Mao. So we're going to hit all of them. MLM, not at multi-level marketing. Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. We're going to hit them all. And Uh, sort of talk about China. We're going to talk about the Soviet Union. We're going to try to get a sense of, you know, what what they call actually existing socialism. And just get a sense of what people – historically what was actually going on so that, you know, when some right wing idiot tries to tell you how horrible the Soviet Union is, you have some kind yeah. of ammunition. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's all I got. There's, there's a lot of narratives that go around about the Soviet Union. <laughs> yes. Yes, there are. There are. And I think it's important to get, you know, to not, to not um, overstate your case in terms of talking about how great it is, but not also right. like lying about it deliberately to make, yeah. you know, somehow American capitalism, look as if it has less blood in its hands when it certainly does not. Right. Um, So, yeah. And uh, we got a whole bunch of stuff coming down the pike. um, And I'm really looking forward to doing future ones. Uh, Socialism, scientific and utopian should be coming out right away. Awesome. (laughs) That'll be our first deep dive into sort of Marxist theory, I think. Um, And then we're definitely going to do the communist manifesto later in the year. We're going to hit up some of the classic Marxist texts. We'll do Communist Manifesto. We'll do State and Revolution by Lenin. And we'll do On Practice and Contradiction by Mao. So we're going to kind of hit some of the key cool. Marxist, Leninist, Maoist texts. Um, and then we'll do – and then as, as the future comes, we'll do other things. Like we'll do like the Critique of Gotha program and German ideology and other shit. You know, whatever whatever I sort of tickles my fancy. Um, <laughs> and uh And we'll kind of go from there. So – Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you, Corey. All right. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far. Uh, Before I call this to an end of an already very long video slash podcast, I'm going to read 15 minutes of The Anarchist Turn by Jacob Blumenfield and Chiara Bottici and Simon Kirkley. So last week or last episode, I read the introduction to The Anarchist Turn. And today I'm going to start with Uh, Section 1, or Part 1, Subverting Boundaries. Uh, Bear with me a little bit. My voice is uh, not great, and I'm going to set a timer for 15 minutes. Because if I don't set a timer, then I will just continue. I will just go way over, and uh, yeah. Okay, and start. Part 1, Subverting Boundaries. 
One, Black and Red, The Freedom of Equals by Chiara Botticci. Today, the immense power development of production, the growth of those requirements which can only be satisfied by the participation of large numbers of people in all countries, the means of communication with traveling becoming com- a commonplace, uh, science, literature, businesses, and even wars, all have drawn mankind into an ever tighter single body whose constituent parts, united amongst themselves, can only find fulfillment and freedom to develop through the well-being of uh, the other constituent parts, as well as the whole. Malatesta, Anarchy. (coughs) Omnia sunt cumnia. Cumunia? Yeah, okay. Luther Bisset Q. In 1967, Italian anarchist Belgrado Pedrini wrote a poem entitled The Galleon. The image is that of a miserable galleon in which everybody works as a slave, deprived of freedom. Days and nights pass, but nothing changes until someone starts to incite their fellow slaves to revolt by pointing out that they have nothing to lose and all to gain from the rebellion. As the poem reads, and I'm just going to focus on the English part, (laughs) we are the anemic crew. We are the anemic crew uh, of which an infamous galley, of an infamous galley, which quick death cuts down slowly as we grow hungry. Never do clear horizons open up our dawn, and on the squalid deck cries the guard all day long. Our days pass as we sail in feeded bottomed boats. We are thin and pale slaves bound together by iron chains. The moon rises above the sea, stars revolve in the sky at night, but for us a funeral veil lies draped over our lights. Swarms of scorched slaves bent bent to groan over the oar, let us break these chains, or we will die bent to row. Tell me, groaning slaves, why do we row just to row? Better to die among the waves of a, on the sea of whitening foam. Let us row until the ship dashes upon the reef, raise the black and red upon the whistling breeze, and let the frothy wave be a pitiful place to lay, but let the sun of anarchy rise o'er the martyrs one day. Rise, slaves, to arms, to arms, O gurgling waves and brine, Thunder and lightning clash above the fateful galleon. Rise, slaves, to arms, to arms. Let us strike with all our strength. Justice, we swear, justice. Give us liberty or give us death. <clears throat> so, uh, this was in... The original is in Italian, but uh, Ciro Botticci did a, a wonderful um, translation, which is great for those of us who don't speak Italian. So... <clears throat> It continues. The image of the galleon conveys a crucial political message. If you are on the side of the oppressed, you do not have anything to lose from the revolt. On the contrary, you have all to gain. As slaves, as slaves are the overwhelming majority that makes the galleon work. This is because on a galleon, we are so dependent on one another that it becomes impossible to be free alone. Even if you are the master, you will constantly be threatened by the slavery of others. There is no intermediate. We are either all free or all slaves. Pedrini's biography is similar to that of many anarchists who lived through the troubled years of the Italian fascist regime. Chased for his anti-fascism, he was finally imprisoned for the death of a fascist policeman in a clash between a group of anarchists and the fascist secret police. A few years later, he was liberated by the partisans and fought with the resistance against fascists and the Nazis' army for a couple of years. After the end of the war in 1945, the newly constituated Italian Republic recognized the importance of his fight for fascism, but then put him back in jail. He remained there for 30 years, 
notwithstanding the numerous international campaigns for his liberation. Why? For the Italian state, Pedrini was a criminal, a normal murderer. The fact that he had killed the policeman because he was a fascist and was just about to shoot Pedrini and his comrades did not matter, his crime being an anarchist. Like many of his anarchist comrades, he had to be banned. The fact that the Minister of Justice was then the communist Pal Palmiro Togliati did not help. Quite the opposite. In those days, the hostility between communists and anarchists was perhaps even stronger than between communists and fascists. Yet precisely in Pedrini's galleon, in his invitation to ra raise the black and red flag, we find the symbol of a peculiar view of freedom which, so I will argue, represents the platform for the convergence of anarchism and Marxism. Pedrini's metaphor tells us two important things. First, that we are all in the same boat, and second, that the freedom of every individual strictly depends on that of all others. You cannot be free alone, because freedom can only be realized as freedom of equals. With this expression, I do not mean we have to be free and equals, but we cannot be free unless we are all equally so. The aim of this chapter is to argue that there is a significant convergence between Marxism and anarchism, and that they both conceive of freedom in this way. After first exploring the meaning of this conception of freedom, and second distinguishing it from that of autonomy, I shall, third, argue that today's social, economic, and political conditions render this view particularly timely, and fourth, call for an overcoming of the historical divisions between anarchism and Marxism. The ban on the black and red that led Pedrini to prison is still there, but time has come to lift it. The Freedom of Equals At the beginning was freedom. It was commonplace to say that freedom is the crucial issue for anarchism. So much so that some have claimed that this word summarizes the sense of the entire academic doctrine and credo. There are good reasons to argue that freedom is also the crucial concern for Marx, who from his early writings is concerned with the conditions of, for human emancipation. Indeed, the entire path of his thought could be described as a reflection on the conditions for freedom understood first as a more general human emancipation and later on as freedom from exploitation in light of his theory of surplus value. In this section, I illustrate this view of freedom and distinguish it from that of freedom of, as autonomy, and in the following one, I will show that Marxism and anarchism can provide each other with the antidote to their possible degeneration. But why freedom at the beginning, and moreover, what freedom? Max Stirner has a very helpful way to phrase the answer in The Ego and Its Own, he observes that most theories of society pursue the issue of what is the essence of man, what is its nature, and as such, they either expressingly begin with such a question or take it as their implicit starting point. However, Stirner observes, the question is not what is the human being, but rather who, and the answer is that I, in my uniqueness, am the human being. In other words, we should not start with an abstract theory about a presumed essence or, which is equivalent, the nature of the human being, but with the simple fact that I am here and now in my uniqueness. Otherwise said, There is no other possible beginning because as an answer to the who question, I've set my cause on nothing. It may appear paradoxical to start with the quotation from Stirner as an author who has been very much criticized in both within both Marxism and anarchism for his strong individualism. But it is nevertheless a helpful starting point to think of the centrality of freedom. Freedom is at the beginning, because at the beginning there is the who question, and thus every being endowed with the capacity to say I am 
The ego is at the beginning as an acti- as activity, as the capacity to move and speak, and here lies the root of its capacity to be free. And yet, if this interpretation is correct, and the being who says, I am, cannot but be a sing- being endowed with language, then it follows that Stirner's deduction of a radical individualism, which depa- depicts a continual war between the individual and society, is potentially contradictory. To put it in a nutshell, the individual cannot be at total war with society, as Stirner claims, because the individual is to a large extent its own product. The ability to speak and thus language presupposes a plurality of egos, because language can never be learned without a plurality of beings. An entirely asocial being, such as the one that Stirner depicts, would be a speechless being. So if Stirner is right in identifying this primordial activity of consciousness as the starting point for thinking about freedom, he is nevertheless wrong in deducing from it such a radical egoism. His individualism, which he presents as a rigorous logical deduction, may then then well be the historically identifiable egoism of the then emerging European bourgeoisie as Marx and Engels suggested. To use another Marxian expression, we can say that the very idea of an individual separated from all other individuals is a Robinsonade. The fantastic representation of an isolated individual lost on a desert island, which is nothing but the imaginary representation of the concrete economic development of a specific epoch. But such an isolated and unrelated individual cannot exist because the human being does not become social at a discrete point in time and for the sake of particular purposes, but is so from the very beginning. We do not create society, but are rather created by it. In one of his lectures on anarchy, Bakunin illustrates this point through the following example. Take an infant endowed with the most brilliant faculties. If thrown in a desert at a very young age, such a being will perish, as it is very likely, or else survive, but become a brute, deprived of speech and all the other traits that we usually associate with humanity. Together with speech, the infant will also be lacking in the development of proper thinking, because there cannot be any thought without words. Sure, people can also reflect through images, but in order to articulate a complex thought, they need words. That can only be learned by interacting with other humans, human beings. As we shall see, this view lies at the heart of Bakunin's idea that you can only be free if everyone else is free. Otherwise stated, freedom can only be a freedom of equals. If this appears, if this view appears paradoxical, it is so because we have so internalized the ideological construction of human beings as independent individuals that we have difficulties representing freedom as a relation rather than as a property with which separate individuals are endowed. Let me illustrate this view in more detail. According to Bakunin, since human beings are so dependent on one another, you cannot be free in isolation but only through the web of reciprocal interdependence. Although quite refined in its development, it is not a view very far from common sense. Freedom, in Bakunin's view, consists in the right to obey nobody other than myself, and to determine my acts in conformity with my convictions, mediated through the equally free consciousness of everybody. Freedom is therefore the capacity to do what I want, to act in conformity with my convictions, but, and here it comes the refinement, In order to know what my own convictions are, I need the mediation of the equally free consciousness of everybody. 
This is a view of freedom that clearly resonates with Hegelian themes. However, as it will be clear later on, it is a view that Bakunin will bring well beyond Hegel, by extending it to the whole humanity, beyond any border, be it social, political, or even historical. On the other hand, we can clearly see how much how such a view differs from the mainstream liberal view of freedom as self-determination. While Marx observes that the image of the isolated individual is not at the beginning, but rather at the end of history, Bakunin, in a passage that echoes contemporary theorists of the technologies of the self, such as Foucault, observes that it is not individuals who create society, but the society that, so to speak, individualizes itself in every individual. Bakunin is well aware that freedom as self-determination is empty. If there is no such thing as a self that can choose autonomously, the crucial point is not simply doing what I want, but to be sure that what I believe to be the fruit of my free choice actually is. If I am led by circumstances of my life to believe that my servitude is immutable or even desirable, there is no way I can be free. It is the dilemma of voluntary servitude and therefore of the techniques through which compliant subjects are created. That has been at the center of anarchist thinking for a long time. In Bakunin's view, human beings are determined by both material and representational social factors. When, still in the womb of their mother, every human being is already determined by a high number of geographical, climatic, and economic factors, which constitute the material nature of their social condition, in addition to such a series of material factors, which Marx investigated in far greater detail, Bakunin also mentions a series of beliefs, ideas, and representations that are equally crucial. Again, in an extremely timely passage, Bakunin observes that every generation finds as already made a whole world of ideas, images, and sentiments that it inherits from previous epochs. These do not present themselves to the newborn as a system of ideas, since children would not be able to apprehend it in this form. Rather, such a world of ideas imposes itself as a world of personified facts, made concrete in the persons and things that surround them, as a world that speaks to their senses through whatever they see and hear since their very early days. Okay, so that brings us up to uh, page 15. We are partway through uh, Black and Red, The Freedom of Equals. And yeah, I hope that... Uh, I hope that you're enjoying the Anarchist uh, Reading Corner. I, I, I'm quite enjoying doing the reading. I almost I lost track of time when I was uh, reading this uh, segment, but um, I'm going to try. I have to keep it to a small amount of time because I already have, uh, you know, long interviews and the red reviews with Justin. Plus, now I'm adding in the section called Anarchist uh, Ask an Anarchist by with my friend Renee and. And if you know of anybody who has any questions for an anarchist, get them to email them to me at mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com. And I will try to answer them to the best of my ability. That's all, folks. Thanks for listening. Remember to share this show with your friends and on the social media site that you use the most. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated, and it helps me spend more time on this and my other projects when I'm not at work so that I don't have to work as many hours at gig jobs. If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can send me money on PayPal at paypal.me slash brainstorm podcast. 
If you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app of choice or one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser would be great. If you want to find more from me, then make sure to check out my link tree at linktr.ee slash skepticalcory. You can find all my social media stuff there, as well as links to my other shows, which include Skeptarchy, which is a panel show I do with some very smart people, and From Many People's Strength, which is a podcast about Saskatchewan politics. My Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty, and my Facebook page is The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist, or you can send me a friend request at facebook.com slash cjbrainstorm. I accept most friend requests. Um, you can also email me at the mind of a skeptical leftist at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and or watching. And remember, the truth leans left.